coasting, we are coasting, our work is done here, we are coasting now. Hey everyone, Dave, tell them what this is. Hey, uh, it's Pastor David Berge here with Michael J. Nelson. This is Like Trees Walking, the podcast where we talk about the big questions and issues of theology, philosophy, morality, the spiritual... Um, the the human i am human you are human we're all we're all human we're a human league one might we say are a league of i humans. was working as a waitress in a cocktail bar uh, that's before your time no course. but i know that song of course that's great played song. In. oh god what a great song oh dear i yes. hope you're saying that with no, sarcasm no you love that song i love it but anyways, uh, so we're co- we're not coasting. This is not like we're doing a clip show. I like, know. I oh, know. hey, remember? <laughs> remember I'm just saying that the work was done. We we like we we cleaned the Augean stable and we're we're all done. And now we just get to present. What is this. it about the Augean stables? What's so bad about them? Uh, I guess they were big. It must have been big. Mm. Like the horses were big. <laughs> I think everything. Was just, <laughs> I think if just picture everything oversized, Texas sized stable. <laughs> And I think you've got it. So, um, yeah, we. So this is part two uh, of our of the interview that we did with Gordon Graham. Wrapping it up, it's a, it's a shorter episode, but still very very rich. I, I ask him a few more questions. Uh, how much of a sales bump do you think since episode one, <laughs> Evil and Christian Ethics has gotten? Oh, he's got the LTW bump. There's we're gonna, no doubt about so it. So before we release this, here's what I'm gonna do because we're we're doing these back to back. I'm like we'll release them a week apart, but I'm gonna. I'm going to like screenshot his Amazon book sales rank and then we're going to see if there's any bump. But then if nothing happens, I assume we will not well, present that. We the... won't follow up. You won't see anything. It so drops. If there's, if there's radio <laughs> silence on that, you have your answer. I'm doing it right. I'm doing, I'm doing it right now. I'm going to do it. I'm gonna look hey, it by up. the way, I wanted to say that um, I thought that Mr. Graham, this was a, a, a really a special and uh, an and interview of great worth. It was a golden interview. I think it was a golden gram. Is my, uh, <laughs> ha, come on. That's what I called it. That was our nickname for him when I was in seminary. It was golden gram. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Now, folks, just not to turn you off from the cost of this book, but it is $45. <laughs> Wait, there's no... <laughs> but you can buy it used very good for $3.30. Oh, okay. Too. Well, but that, that won't do anything to the ranking, right? Oh, yeah, that's... Uh, see... Because those... Yeah, those uh, marketplace guys. Is that Amazon buy, Marketplace? You no, know yeah. Well, there's Amazon Marketplace, and then yeah. So I'm looking on Amazon. So folks, if you could do us a huge solid and spend 45 of your hard-earned dollars, <laughs> so we can see the bump in the sales rank. Is that even a hardback, or is that a? Or is it's that a paperback. Paperback for 45. dollars This is Cambridge University Press, man. Man, these college guys—they got it wired. They got it so made. It's like a textbook, so it's therefore. It's $45. It's not a textbook, Mike. Well, that's I'm saying, you know, that's the classification he wants it under. We could get you can get a Kindle version of it. You can save a good amount of money. It's $40 for your Kindle. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> uh, or or a hardcover, Mike? Do you uh It's available in so hardcover. You, I'm looking at a copy right here across the table from me. You should uh you should auction that off and let's uh No, I want to keep this. Well, let's photocopy it before you leave and then we'll auction it off. <laughs> Is that legal? I'll, I'll spend the next 8 hours at the copier <laughs> getting this thing done. So uh All right, so 
let's get into the interview because people were probably listening to the first one and now they've come to this. And they're like, get on with get, it. Get on with it, guys. So, so uh, yeah. anything else to say? Nope. Uh, I, I think I asked him. My first follow-up, I think, is a very natural one. And then we jump off into some things that I found in, that I wanted to talk to him about from the first two chapters of this book. So if you have it in your hands, I, I, I ask a pretty natural follow-up question um, from the first episode. And then we delve into a couple of different uh, areas that I found uh, re- really, really interesting and provocative from the book itself. So more juicy details uh, to hear. And um, so I'm, uh, yeah, I, I, I had fun listening to him. So I hope uh, you enjoyed as well. I know they will. Let's dive in. Here we go. Gordon Graham part two. What is your, what's your response to the person, you know, who hears this? We have all kinds of people listening to this podcast. So I'm yes. sure uh, plenty of people who don't, you know, who hear about the the Christian story and go, well, okay, like that, I don't believe that. In fact, you know, spiritual agency don't, isn't that just a bunch of mumbo jumbo? You know, we live in a post enlightenment world. So we know that, you know, that belongs to, you know, the, the world of, you know, fairies and, uh, goblins and spooks. And so that's Mm -hmm. a, that there, there is no such thing as, you know, Mm -hmm. a spiritual realm or spiritual agents or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It's just, it's just mumbo jumbo. You're, you're, taking us backwards what 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 what's the response to that well the first thing i say is this um it is the fact uh that the christian church and actually uh judaism before it uh you'll find this in the book of exodus as a matter of fact um has always battled against superstition mumbo jumbo goblins soothsayers a lot so the true religion uh in uh when god pronounces to moses uh, and when Christ um, uh, preaches, uh, and when the church has taught, and uh, especially uh, in a spirit of renewal at the Reformation, a major part of that uh, is to combat superstition and the belief in, uh, in you might say, lesser beings of uh, and hobgoblins, as you put it, and that kind of thing. So the first point I want to make, uh, that, that, that the church and the Christian faith and Jewish, Judeo-Christianity generally, and actually Islam, has always been an enemy of superstition, not a friend. Uh, and an enemy of magic uh, and soothsaying and all those astrology and all those things that go with it. So, uh, so uh, to be pushed back into a religious position, if, if pushed back is the right way, is not to be pushed uh, in the direction of superstition. Quite the contrary. Is to be pushed in a position that rejects superstition. Secondly, uh, although people fashionably refer to the Enlightenment, uh, they forget uh, that the Enlightenment uh, induced itself a reaction in the 19th century, uh, which is generally passes by the name of Romanticism. Uh, but precisely the spirit, the, the, at the heart of Romanticism is the idea that the Enlightenment reduced both world and human beings to mere machines. And it could not uh, consequently accommodate uh, what is at the heart of of what it is to be a human being. Uh, Now, this is a large topic, but I just say that is why uh, uh, a certain kind of enlightenment humanism has great difficulty in accommodating things like music and poetry and art, uh, and indeed imagination more generally. Uh, So the uh, poets and painters and musicians of the 19th century uh, 
were resisting and rejecting a lot about the Enlightenment, not, as it were, in the spirit of turning the clock back, but in the spirit of recognizing a deficiency uh, that, broadly speaking, a science uh, of mechanical materialism uh, induced. And we see that uh, uh, again in the uh, 20th century, uh, the p people have sometimes, particularly artists, I think, and, and musicians have understood uh, that there is something badly missing uh, when uh, a certain kind of abstracted science is allowed to be the uh, dominant or the, the basic metaphysics of our experience. Uh, and uh, uh, this would be true just at the most ordinary level. You know, you love your children, your children love you. Uh, can that be explained uh, in any sense uh, biologically? What is the difference between that and simply the nurture that uh, adult animals give uh, infant animals? So I think to capturing the human element uh, is one of the things that, as, uh, that the, romant the Romantic era recognized as being an important counter to Enlightenmentism. So uh, you want to be human, uh, returning or seizing upon the Christian faith is to reject superstition and to speak to human beings as, if you like put it this way, ensouled as essentially spiritual beings. Um, yeah, wow. So um, this is, I have another question, which is, um, it relates to the first chapter, which I thought was really interesting, where you you kind of challenge head on a couple of things that I think a lot of people take for granted. One is this notion. I, I think it's I think it's a, a so broadly accepted that to to say this would be cliche, but that we live in a you know we live in a morally pluralistic world that that mm -hmm. our our that's that's the context in which we live, and so. Uh, moral Christian ethics takes place within that context. Why do you reject that claim that we live in a, which seems to be, have been accepted nearly universally, that we live in a morally pluralistic uh, culture or time? Uh, well, let me just say, first of all, it depends what you mean by morally. I think people often invoke the word morally as a sort of linguistic underlining, a sort of really, really. So when they say something is wrong and then they add this is morally wrong, they're not adding any more than I really, really think this is wrong. So precisely what moral pluralism means, a moral diversity. Uh, but if you uh, take some of the great uh, disputes and debates, I don't think you find at the bottom a great deal of plurality of values, uh, you find something, uh, on the contrary, you find that usually at the bottom there's a common basis of value uh, because uh, you don't... Uh, so if I just take the case of abortion, which I think, I can't remember now whether I mentioned this in the book or not, but if you take the case of abortion, so let's just say pro-life versus pro-choice, this looks like a, um, a fundamental clash. But actually, if you look a, a little more closely, you find the clash is not essentially fundamental. 
No one thinks uh, that choice, uh, human choice, is of no consequence at all. No one thinks that uh, life, new life, is of no value at all. Uh, so uh, people who are very much um, pro-choice uh, and want to have uh, as late as possible a, uh, a time um, for abortion, let us say, uh, they will acknowledge and uh, give uh, thanks and uh, be delighted when uh, a child who is wanted but is born before that date, I suppose it's very late, uh, and they will, when that child survives, they'll be equally delighted. They won't say, oh, that was terrible, that was a big mistake or anything. No, they'll say, this life, this is wonderful, this life-saving activity. So what is the difference then? And, and conversely, the other side, the, the pro-life people uh, will never say that a woman's choice doesn't matter at all. Let her just do what she's told or what somebody dictates to her. Uh, so what is going on here is that there is a difference in emphasis uh, and in uh, uh, rank orderings between life and choice rather than uh, conflict of values. Now, all values are going to be like that. We constantly face uh, uh, differences. And those differences will have to be accommodated in terms of priorities prioritizing one thing over another, but you only have to prioritize things if you basically agree that both of them matter. Now, what I think is that uh, what introduces another dimension to this, and I think this is characteristic of the modern world, is that people on both sides of such a debate, and other debates too, uh, they've really given up on anything that could be called morality, and they think that what really matters is what the law permits and does not permit. So if you take same-sex marriage, for example, uh, people are not content uh, with saying, this is morally wrong, I leave it there, or with saying, this is morally right, I leave it there. They want to see that judgment embodied in the law, one way or the other. And I think that uh, what that shows is far from believing in moral pluralism, they believe that the only unifying factor we have left to us uh, is the positive law. Um, and so we. But my point, may I just say, yes, my yes. point in that opening chapter, uh, part of my point was this: you take any of these issues, and you will find Christians on either side. So, uh, so if you, uh, if the idea of Christian ethics uh, is that there are things actions, categories of actions that Christians must do, must not do, you will not be able to identify any such actions as being exclusively or particularly Christian. There will be, on all the debates, there will be Christians ranged on both sides. So is Christian ethics then a, a matter of appealing to like method or procedure? Is there a distinctively Christian you know, process well, or well, procedure? Well, what I wanted to say... Uh, in that opening chapter is that there's a, a traditional contrast between Christian ethics, which, by the way, is a relatively recent term in a way, um, and uh, tends to be more Protestant, uh, and moral theology, which is an older term and tends to be more Catholic. And what I wanted to say uh, was that um, 
Moral theology is really concerned with this question, why does morality matter? As opposed to what things are morally right and wrong. And uh, that's where you get the difference uh, between humanism and Christian faith, I think. Not in terms of uh, the things that humanists will say are right and wrong and things Christians say, but what humanists and how humanists explain the significance of morality and how Christians explain it. So uh, to follow up on that, then uh, why does morality matter from a Christian perspective? It matters because uh, it is located within a cosmic, a cosmology of creation, uh, redemption, uh, and uh, fulfillment. Uh, so th- there is a story to the cosmos, uh, and we can live our lives in the light of that story, or not. Uh, and to, if we do live in the light of the story, then what we call moral action has a certain significance. It has a cosmic significance. Uh, if not, then it can't have a cosmic significance. It can only have a, a human and probably social significance. And you, you, you get this actually. Uh, in Enlightenment moral philosophers, they essentially, uh, morality becomes the rules by which it is most convenient to live. But that effectively makes morality indistinguishable from pragmatically grounded rules like driving on the one side of the road or requiring people to submit tax returns. Now, nobody thinks those are moral things, but they are rules that we need by which to live together. So the danger for, I think, uh, so to speak, enlightenment morality, at least of a certain kind, uh, is that it simply becomes a set of rules that we need in order to make social life function. Uh, And and, and if you take that view, then gone is heroism, cowardice, uh, sacrifice, and so on. Um, And so here is my last line of inquiry my last my last question or maybe set of questions but uh so a a standard response i think that i've that you run across um you know in in basically post enlightenment um uh christianity is that uh you know so we have the you know new testament which is replete with i mean one of the main things jesus is doing it seems is <laughs> casting out you know evil mm-hmm. or unclean spirits and and then you have uh, revelation with its you know huge cosmic battle between uh the mm-hmm. lamb and the dragon uh well the sort of demythologizing project mm-hmm. of saying well, that's mm-hmm. actually that is it's true not in the sense that it's describing anything uh spiritual but an element of the human condition or the existential struggle of of humanity. And so, uh, we, you know, we kind of translate these, that's the ancients translating this human struggle into spiritual, uh, spiritual language or spiritual terms. So what is, uh, what's wrong with that move in your view? Well, it depends what you mean by into spiritual terms. I mean, demythologizing, um, I think, you know, nobody needs to demythologize the book of Revelation. It's a hard work to understand, but you don't need to demythologize it because nobody thinks it's literally true anyway, or at least it's very hard to believe. And people got hung up on this recently. I mean, you know, St. Augustine never thought that 
Bible was literally true, even the notion of literalness could apply to it. So we need to be asked what we mean by demythologizing, and there comes in then a certain kind of, I think, contentious philosophical history about not about the Bible, but about the human mind. The modern mind contrasted with the ancient mind or the medieval mind. Now, this this is what is the basis of these characterizations of the modern mind, the medieval mind, the ancient mind? It's certainly not directly the Bible. Uh, which doesn't use those terms at all. So suppose I say, well, wait a second, uh, there is a common humanity. Uh, that common humanity stretches across uh, the centuries. There is so much in the Bible uh, that we can resonate with very easily and directly. So uh, there is a common humanity. If it were not so, we couldn't even understand a lot of the stories. But the reason that we understand the stories of, of uh, David, for example, is because uh, there is a, a constant resonance. The same, incidentally, is true of Greek tragedies and Shakespearean plays and so on. These people lived, in some sense, in different worlds. You know, Shakespeare didn't have the telephone. And, and nobody flew around in airplanes. We accept all that, of course. Uh, and there wasn't the same modern medicine and so on. But the idea that all of those add up to a different mind is a very contentious, I think, uh, metaphysical history. And it doesn't, uh, that, that is not something that's in the Bible or has anything to do with the Bible in a way. And, you know, when we look back at the ancient stories of ancient Egypt and so on, how amazing it is that we can resonate with those. It ought not to be possible if the ancient mind and the modern mind are so very, very different. So uh, translating things for the modern mind implies that there is such a thing as the modern mind. And I'd want to start by saying, and what do you think that is? You know, is it that we, we love our children differently? We don't have the same resentments. We don't have the same fears. We can't understand. Uh, praise and the pursuit of glory. But you take just uh, take a favorite example of mine uh, in in the eighth chapter of the first book of Samuel when uh, Samuel is given to, to, to the, the Israelites they want a king they want oh we must have a king must have a king and God warns them uh, as to what kings mean what's it going to, to put yourself under ruler uh, and. Uh, so they get a pretty straightforward warning, uh, and they say, never mind, uh, we accept all that because we want somebody to win our battles for us, uh, just like the other nations have. Now, I personally think that resonates with the modern world so very, very easily that no demythologizing is needed. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm holding an iPhone up to the microphone right now, folks. This is this is high tech stuff. Let's just let it start, okay? Oh, it's so bad. Just just a little bit more. Okay. What a great All song. All right, come on. <laughs> I can't remember if I mentioned this on the podcast. Um, I'm not, this may sound like a 
this is not meant to be a humble brag. I'll just get that out of the way. But my wife hashtag humble brag. But my wife loved a tweet that I had once that uh, I'm no longer on Twitter. By the way, yeah, we can. That's we'll another talk about episode. That. That's a, uh, ethical concern. Um, but it was that one day I want to be on the stand in front of a judge and say, "Yes, I was working at a, a, a restaurant <laughs> as a cocktail bar. That much is true." You know, just break down and cry and then weep and have to be led away to jail. Uh, three people got that joke my wife was one of them well she enjoyed that um folks so uh i hope you enjoyed uh part two of that interview there's no part three um but, but dr graham he's retiring he's moving back to he's moving back to scotland so well is he moving to golden colorado so he can be <laughs> golden graham and golden colorado no he's moving to aberdeen or something like that or edinburgh Ed- edinburgh oh so he is from He's from he's Scottish, Scotland. yeah. I think we've. He does not have the traditional. That's... I wanted to hear, you know, the the brogue. Uh, what's that? What's their drink? They drink over there, Iron Brew. Oh, I don't know. It's like some horrible. I was just heard about it on the radio. It's some horrible like soda or pop that they drink, like an orange pop. Oh, well, it might be good. I, I... Aren't those brew dog guys from there? Aren't they Scottish? Hadwin. That's all I think of. Uh, sorry, I think of. Um, I don't know why I thought yeah, of Train Spotting. Train Spotting. That fellow with the weird head. He's a weird looking. He dude. is a very odd looking dude. Great, good actor. It's a really depressing movie. But I mean, well done. Certainly. Really, you weren't uplifted by that. No, it didn't make me want to move to Scotland. <laughs> Did you feel like there were the forces of darkness were at work? Oh, in they those were people? certainly there. Oh, yeah, my guess. Bringing it all back around, absolutely. They had been seduced by spiritual powers that were trying to get them to destroy themselves. And uh, so if you enjoyed this, though, I will say, please go to iTunes, rate us, and review us. Um, and something else, um, so if you can't, if you're not willing to you know, put, put, put out your own bucks, 45 or 40 of your own bucks, or 104 for the hardcover. Oh. <laughs> That's a collector's edition. I guarantee you we can get it signed by Gordon Graham if uh, if you just... Really? Yeah, we'll just send it mail. We'll get his mail. Well, just How mail will it. we do that? I can't. Who will they, who will they mail it Actually, to? don't do that. <laughs> See? Are you creating problems for everyone? Don't do that. <laughs> That's a huge problem. Don't do that at all. But uh, we could if, you know... Whatever, but how? <laughs> just, there would have to be a call to action here. And you're not. Stop. You're, I'm not willing to follow. Through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're so trying sorry. to look like the good guy, I'm and you so just sorry. mucked everything up. Okay, I'm gonna. But stop. here's what I need you to do, though. Um, I'm not going to play our normal outro music. I want you to go back to Human League. Okay. And uh, I want to prove once again how awful this song is. Why does this get played still to this very day? Well, we're going to find out by listening to more of it. And I will say, folks, that if you found this topic uh, interesting, um, I think a very you could buy for very much cheaper, probably ten bucks or less. C.S. Lewis's Screw Tape Letters. Um, I, I feel like that's just right in this wheelhouse of everything that he is he is he's writing about. So um, well, that's good company. I mean, you're putting him in the the same company as uh, Mr. Lewis, well, as yeah, Clive I think, Staples. I think the narrative, uh, the the, narr- the classical Christian, you know, narrative universe. They both are firmly entrenched within those and um, speak to me the same realities. Doctor Graham's, of course, from a more you know academic position. Lewis from the the joyful Christian allegory. And so, I, I, yeah, I think that they are, you know, uh, they are they are. Of the same ilk, cut from the same cloth. Certainly. Well, there you go. See, high praise, worth forty five dollars. Then for sure, I would. Yeah, I mean, I have, I don't camera. I spent a lot. I could go look on my Amazon purchase history, but I definitely spent a pretty penny on this bad boy. 
Wow. I'm going to have to it's borrow that it. from you. Well, <laughs> well, I've got $45. I'll buy it. I'm going in. I'm going to do that today. You look and the sales will be up because I'm going to buy it right after this episode. <laughs> yeah, how much will that make it go? Just I don't one know. What, what is their algorithm? That's I don't really, know. Yeah, we'll find out. Um, so anyways, do uh, you got anything else, Mike? I don't. I, I just want to say uh, Human League, terrible. But which is worse is uh, Corey Hart's I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. You know that song? Oh, of course I do. Yeah. Dun, dun, is that dun, dun, worse? Dun, 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 I think that's worse. I was just singing that yesterday with my son because he had Were sunglasses you? on oh, at did, night. Yep. <laughs> did he just go, and you were doing your dad stuff? Like, yep. come on. I wear my... Yep, exactly. And so, he probably is, he's still young enough where he thinks dad singing Corey Hart's Sunglasses at Night is probably still cool. I picked you out. I sh- why is he shaking someone up? What does that even mean? I don't know. That much is true, though. And he turned then, someone into someone new. He doesn't sound like he's smart enough to do the uh, Eliza Doolittle, uh, you know, turn her into someone new, like the Rain in Spain stuff. Yeah. He seems like a pretty dull dude. This guy is taking a lot of credit for this person's life turn. He is, but she sharply rebukes him, yeah. as you know, in the song. <laughs> Very, so a wise woman. She is. Let's get back to it, huh? All right, here we go. And thank you for listening. This has been and still is like trees walking. He can put her back Whoa! there, too. Whoa, that's really aggressive. Like, I'll bring you down. I built you up. I can tear you down. I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it. No, she's made that clear. What did you say there? You change your mind. No. <laughs> no. Oh, you know, when you threaten me, uh, <laughs> destroying me, that really makes me want you. Yes. You're right. Yeah, you built me up. Uh, you can tear me up. Yes, I want you. <laughs> oh, God. All right, let it play out. And so long, everyone. <laughs>